Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, today on the show, we're going to take a look at uh, one very important subject. Um, it's an idea that has been gaining steam in a number of cities around the country and that is launching in Atlanta and a couple of other cities in southwestern Georgia. Um, it's the notion of guaranteed incomes designed to help close the gap between the well-off and the poor in uh, many communities. We know that right here in Atlanta, uh, we have one of the largest gaps between uh, those uh, with resources and those who don't have financial resources. And um, I think here in Georgia, for every dollar that a uh, white worker makes, uh, an African-American makes 66 cents. That's a little better than the national average, which is 61 cents to the dollar. Nevertheless, there are significant issues with uh, that gap. And uh, the guaranteed income is one way that many people think it should be addressed. The inspiration for this show really comes from my uh, Tuesday partner on Political Rewind, AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, who really dug into this issue and um, I'm glad to say is with us today. Tamar, before I introduce the other panelists for this conversation, let's talk about how you begin your piece, and, um, and then we'll play sound from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., because you, your lead points out the fact that Dr. King started promoting guaranteed incomes uh, back uh, in the civil rights days, Right. Yeah, and it was it's kind of a part of his legacy that I wasn't as familiar with. After passage of the, the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, he really turned his attention to, to poverty reduction. And this was kind of one of the final things that he advocated for uh, before his murder. Um, and he, he wrote about it pretty extensively in, in his 1967 book and talks about how, you know, the, the curse of poverty has no justification in our age. The time has come for us to civilize civilize ourselves by the total direct and immediate abolition of poverty. Um, and, and he kind of talks about it in terms of, you know, kind of human development. Like we, we're not cannibals. We don't eat each other anymore. How are we allowing poverty to still exist uh, given the wealth in this country? Um, he was well aware of how controversial this idea was. Um, and so let's listen to him talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, just that uh, in a speech that he gave where he devoted some time to talking about guaranteed income. We must develop progress, or rather the program, and I can't stay on this long, that will drive the nation to, to a guaranteed annual income. Now, early in the century, this proposal would have been greeted with ridicule and denunciation as destructive of initiative and responsibility. At that time, economic status was considered the measure of the individual's abilities and talents. And in the thinking of that day, the absence of worldly goods indicated a want of industrious habits and moral fiber. We've come a long way in our understanding of human motivation and of the blind operation of our economic system. 
Now we realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. Dr. King uh, talking about uh, the guaranteed income uh, and understanding that there are people who were going to take exception to it and not understand at all why the government should be giving uh, handouts, essentially, to uh, people uh, in need. Um, let's introduce the other members of the panel and begin this conversation in full. I'm very glad to have with us uh, Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki, who represents the old Fourth Ward, where uh, Amir, a program, a pilot program, is um, either about to begin or is, has, is it already underway, the program in the old Fourth Ward, Amir? Uh, good to be with you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here for the conversation with the panelists. Uh, it is it is now. We're launching in about a month and a half, two months. Uh, it's been in the, the yeah. works for about two years as we, we build it out. Happy to, to talk about it and then the roots of it and why we've launched it, but excited for this conversation. And uh, we will talk about that program and one other uh, in the city of Atlanta at, at, at some point soon in the show. Uh, we're also joined by an old friend of Political Rewind, who we haven't seen for quite some time, Kyle Wingfield, uh, formerly the columnist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Back in those days, Kyle, we had you on pretty regularly uh, on the show. But when you went off to become the president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, you... Uh, realized you had to be a little more cautious about how you, about many of the subjects you could not talk about uh, on the show. But the whole notion of guaranteed income is a topic that the Georgia Public Policy Foundation has looked at. Hi, Kyle. Hello. It's great to be back with you, Bill. Um, and yes, I have um, not necessarily missed all the politics of the last few years since I left, but uh, it's it's good to be with you on a nice policy-related topic today. <laughs> Thank you. Why don't you do very quickly uh, tell our listeners what the mission of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation is? Sure. So we are a trusted independent resource for uh, voters and public officials alike, uh, and we aim to bring actionable solutions to real-life problems. So we work on you know, kitchen table type issues, education, health care, uh, taxes. Uh, our newest topic is housing affordability. Um, you know, we'd love to talk with your listeners about that sometime. Uh, we, we focus all on economic related issues, though. We don't do any social issues, but beyond that, we, we cover a pretty broad spectrum. Fair to say, I think, that you look at many of those issues through a somewhat conservative lens. Yes, uh, a fiscal, a fiscally conservative. Yes, uh, yeah. you know we, we've yeah. uh, we've even been accused of being libertarian from time to time. So yeah, <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. Um, okay, tomorrow let's launch into this. Um, I, I mentioned uh, Amir Froki in the Old Fourth Ward and the program that's about to launch there. Um, and there's a second program. Uh, the the Fourth Ward program is privately funded. But we all, I think we, many of us know that Keisha Lance Bottoms, before leaving her job as mayor of Atlanta, uh, started a program uh, funded at like some $2.5 million that would uh, uh, be used by people in a broader geographic area of the city. Talk just a little bit about um, what's underway in Atlanta. 
Sure. As you mentioned, these two programs that are that are sort of parallel in mission, um, you know, the, the program, and I'm sure Councilman Faroki can talk about this a lot more, his is focused on Black women living in Old Fourth Ward, as well as, uh, you know, additional locations in suburban Atlanta, southwest Georgia. So kind of a urban, suburban, rural, trying to get data from all three points. Um, that program is about $13 million. This, this program that former Mayor Bottoms announced is much smaller, $2.5 million, as you mentioned, and it's focused on anyone living in the city of Atlanta, not just women, not just Black people, but anybody um, who's at least 18 and lives 200%, uh, lives below at least 200% of the federal poverty line. But overall, um, kind of the philosophy behind it is the same. Um, kind of trying to collect data to see if a certain amount of, of kind of a guaranteed payment every month, what sort of a difference does it make in the livelihoods of folks who have fallen through the cracks of the system? Um, how are people spending their money? Um, does it make a noticeable difference in their ability to improve, improve their lives, to pay their bills, to maybe find a better job? Um, and so I, I think it'll be very interesting to see what results come in. This is a concept that's been tested here and there over the last couple of years in cities across the country. You mentioned Stockton, California, kind of being the, the most well-known, but a bunch of other cities are looking into this as well. And it's a concept that's really picked up steam in the last couple of years, even though, as we mentioned at the top of the show, it's something that Dr. King proposed almost 60 years ago. Uh, Amir, uh, give us a few of the details about the program that will launch in the Old Fourth Ward. It's funded by the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Funds and the Fund, and the program is called In Her Hands, correct? Uh, almost. So the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund is a nonprofit that's one of my office to run it, so it's removed from the politics of, of City Hall. Um, it is funded through a range of private donors, foundations, individuals from both Georgia and around the country, so no public dollars other than a few that have come from my office uh, or funding this work. Um, and let me just make a quick note. I mean, we, we've quoted Dr. King uh, here. We've heard him speak. Um, it's, it's not even an idea that's, that's only six years old. This idea has been around for, for centuries, even in the US in the late 1700s. Uh, Thomas Paine called for a guaranteed income uh, in 1795. Senator Huey Long in Louisiana called for one uh, in the early 20th century. Alaskans to this day get an annual check from the government based on oil revenue. Um, and it's been played out in various countries around the world for various purposes. Uh, the program here in the Old Fourth Ward that will be one of three sites, we'll do, as uh, Tamar mentioned, a rural and a suburban site as well, um, really came from the, the reality. And I represent six neighborhoods, one of which is the Old Fourth Ward. Uh, and it has increasing affluence, frankly, cheek to cheek with abject poverty. We have the largest community of Section 8 residents in the American South, almost 1,100 folks uh, in subsidized housing. And much of that poverty is generational. And so I said, well, why don't we kind of try and live up to the, the ideals of Dr. King, who was born and, and pastored in, in my district in, at Ebenezer Baptist Church and in the Sweet Auburn neighborhood. Uh, and so we've structured a program that will, it's not race-specific. I know it, the, the focus is uh, articulated as black women, but it is really driven by census tract and income level, and the, the, uh, the filter is really gender and income level. Um, so there may be uh, low-income white women, low-income Latina women, et cetera, who apply to be part of the program. But we're looking at a few census tracts, including starting here in the Old Fourth Ward. The program is distinctive in a couple ways. You mentioned there's a number of programs around the country. Most of them are 12 months. Most of them are, you know, 500 bucks or so. Uh, we asked uh, residents in the neighborhood, what would be most impactful for you? Uh, and we got uh, two things. One is a longer runway. So this is a 24-month program. Uh, the other is um, uh, quite an interesting 
challenge that you and I may not recognize for, uh, that, that presents to a lot of low-income folks, which is if you're receiving public benefits, housing assistance, food assistance, um, you're prevented from saving over a certain amount. So it's hard to save to buy a car, to move into a different neighborhood, to take a job training course, whatever it may be. So we are having uh, two cohorts that will receive um, different amounts. So one group will receive $850 a month for 24 months. The other group will receive a lump sum payment of $4,000 up front and then $750 a month over the 24 months. So the end amount is the same, but one of the things we want to test is if you were given a lump sum payment um, that traditionally would get your benefits eliminated, um, how do you choose? Do you pay down debt? Do you move to a different neighborhood? Do you buy a car? Like, what, all these things that people can do that they're prohibited from doing, it frankly locks them in these entitlement programs um, and makes it difficult for any sort of mobility. So that's a, a quick snapshot, happy to dive deeper, uh, but the focus is on low-income women in an urban, rural, and suburban setting. So, Kyle, uh, just to reiterate, uh, the program that Councilman Froke is involved with, $13 million pilot program, privately funded, one of the largest of its kind in the country. Two years, $850 a month is one way the money will be handed out. The other is $4,000 up front with uh, additional monthly payments. Uh, 650 women at or below the federal poverty line. I just want to make sure our listeners hear those details one more uh, time. Uh, Kyle, at the, at the George Public Policy Foundation, when you look at programs like this, what, what's your uh, response? Well, I think the first thing is that we want to acknowledge that poverty is a very real problem for real people, right? And, and it's something that we should all want to, you know, reduce and even eliminate uh, to the extent that is possible. Uh, but, but then we, we take another look and we say, well, how we try to do that matters. You know, it matters whether it really works, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point here is to try to make people's lives better. You know, it matters whether we're using resources in the right way. Uh, because there's an opportunity cost there. If you don't use them one way, use them in another. Uh, and it matters, you know, whether we're creating problems that didn't exist before. And I was, I was glad to hear Councilmember uh, Faroki mention, you know, some of the traps that people find themselves in due to existing benefit programs. Uh, and, you know, I, I would really say that in a lot of ways, what these types of proposals are trying to do is get around or paper over the problems that exist in this underlying welfare system that we have that trap people. Uh, and I've got some examples and some numbers, if those would be helpful for your listeners to hear, you know, some, some actual ways that people get trapped at a certain income level by our existing welfare program. So I, I think it's admirable to try to, to address this, um, but there's two things. One, what we really ought to do if we want to tackle poverty in this, in this country is, is fix the bad incentives in the welfare program that trap people uh, where they are. And, and uh, two, we want to make sure that anything we're doing doesn't re reduce incentives to work. And we've seen um, in some of the big uh, notable examples of this, you know, kind of, a, kind of a mixed record here. And I wanna talk when we get a chance um, about the largest of this kind, which started the year Dr. King was, was murdered uh, and, and ran for 12 years in half a dozen states in this country and really points out some of the limitations in a program like this if it's not structured properly. Okay, so good. We're setting the table for the conversation tomorrow, and then we'll bring Amir back in. 
Yeah, I think it's worth taking a step back, first of all, to talk about the way that the current social safety net works and how this would be so different. Um, you know, we talk about the this, this safety net and really it's a bunch of different programs that seek to address different facets of, of need. So somebody might get um, you know, a, a voucher to help pay for housing. Um, they might get money to help pay for child care or health care. Uh, but a lot of it is very much earmarked to a specific cause. And I think Amir mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of the show, uh, but it's hard to, to save. It's hard to get money to, you know, to, to save up money to spend on emergencies. Say your car breaks down. Um, you talk to a lot of advocates of guaranteed income programs, and they talk about there, there's often not enough cash to pay for life's little moments that, you know, that that still exist, though. You know, you have a kid who wants to play football, but there's a fee to get the uniform. You know, there's a fee to enter the science fair. And I think that's kind of where I think a lot of advocates of guaranteed income see that they can fill this this need. Um, so, Amir, uh, I want, want to get you in here. One of the things that I thought was interesting, what I heard from Kyle, <clears throat> was that um, he would like to f fix the welfare traps that people fall into. Um, it, and it strikes me that some of the notion behind guaranteed incomes is to do exactly that, say the welfare system, based on some of what Tamar just pointed out, hasn't worked effectively to eradicate poverty. Yeah, I, I appreciate that question, Bill. Uh, and, and Kyle's right. Like, I, I think there's what's interesting is this, the concept of a guaranteed income finds support on both the right and the left. And folks on the right who tend to support it say, "Look, the, the benefits programs that exist, whether it's housing assistance, childcare assistance, food assistance, whatever it may be, they're enormously expensive to deliver because they're very bureaucratic uh, and they take up uh, a lot of energy and funding just to, to stand up the programs." Um, a cash transfer, on the, this is what folks on the right tend to say, could effectively get rid of those programs and you just give people cash and let them spend it on housing and food however they choose to spend it. So it actually reduces the cost of providing that, um, those benefits and those safety nets. And on the left, they, I think they, they say, well, uh, you know, these programs that exist today are overly bureaucratic and trap people in poverty, but we still need them. And on top of that, we need to guarantee income. So there's actually some some overlap and interest on this on both the right and the left. I, I want to respond also to something Kyle said, which was um, uh, worrying about this uh, uh, kind of disincentivizing work. And I, I always chuckle a little bit about it because if you or I receive 500 bucks a month or 800 bucks a month, we wouldn't stop working. And the same applies to someone in poverty. Uh, it's not enough to live off of. Uh, in fact, what it's meant to do is create some dignity and a bit of a, an income floor um, to allow you to know that your kid will be able to get that basketball uniform, or you'll be able to have food on the, on the table. Um, there is an element of dignity and, and um, decency that's, that's kind of baked into focusing on the most vulnerable with a cash transfer every month. Um, and when you and I get a, get a tax credit, the government doesn't ask us how we spend those extra dollars, right? And there's a, there's a kind of a, a, some baked in um, lack of trust and patronizing that we, we tend to apply toward poor folks in this country when in reality, uh, you know, someone making $20,000 a year is probably better at budgeting than I am, uh, who makes significantly more. And so I think there's a, an element of agency uh, that needs to be um, tested and respected in this, in this space. And so it flips the narrative a bit on how we think about assistance in poverty. Um, because for, I'll tell you, for my neighbors up the block who live in, in this low-income subsidized housing, they work just as hard as I work. Uh, and for a lot of them, they're working two or three jobs. And it's just harder and harder to make it in this country because housing costs have gone up, healthcare costs have gone up, inflation is through the roof. 
And so, uh, and this is true across, you know, race, both white folks and brown folks and black folks who are experiencing the same pressures uh, in settings all across the country. And so we're testing one small subset of our, uh, of our country and our city on this, but um, it's, it's changing a little bit how we think uh, what could be most effective. And look, I don't, I don't know what the outcomes are going to be in this and what we're doing here in Atlanta. Uh, but part of the, I think part of a city is to be a laboratory for ideas. If you can't try this at the municipal level, you're never going to be able to scale it at the state or federal level if there are good learnings from this. And that's something that we, we hope to explore. Kyle, maybe it would be helpful if um, you would elaborate on uh, some of your first comments on the show. You said that you could give us a, an example or two of the welfare traps that um, are, are part of this problem and that really you believe are the real uh, uh, issues that need to be dealt with. What, what, what is an example of that kind of trap? Yeah, I'll, I'll be glad to give you one. And um, these numbers come from my friends mm. over an organization called the Georgia Center for Opportunity. They've done a lot of work on this issue in particular of uh, what they call welfare cliffs. So take a single mother with a two-year-old child living here in Fulton County, um, earning uh, gross earnings of $28,000 per year. So that put her right on that 200% of poverty threshold. Um, If you look at all the federal benefits that she's eligible for. Um, And I'm not saying everyone takes advantage of all of them, right? But if if you look at everything that she could possibly uh, apply for and receive at that er at that earnings level, it's almost $36,000 a year in benefits. Now, this is childcare, it's health insurance, it's food assistance, it's housing, uh, and it's refundable tax credits, too. Uh, So it adds up to almost between her income after taxes and those benefits, almost $61,000 per year. So one observation is that clearly we're providing a lot um, in the current system. If she takes a $500 raise at her job, she's due to lose about $7,700 in the benefits. Now, what rational person would take a $500 raise at work knowing you're going to lose $7,700 in benefits? No one would. I certainly wouldn't. Um, and when we look at, the, and this, is, this information is available in $500 income increments, which kind of makes it, which is part of what makes it so valuable. The earned income level she'd have to get or, or reach to get back to that same post-tax, post-benefits level is over $68,000. In other words, she's got to not get a $500 raise. She has to get a $40,000 raise because of, and so the reason is because these benefits programs have income cutoffs, right? And once you cross that threshold, you drop. That's why they call them cliffs. It's like you fall off a cliff with these benefits. And they happen over and over again because every program has a different income threshold and a different steepness and a different, um, you know, depth at which you fall. So this is the reality. I mean, it's, it's like if you imposed a, uh, you know, some of the tax rates that we talk about applying to the rich in this country. If you applied one of those tax rates to poor people, th- this, it would be what they already face in the way of benefits. So this is what I talk about, these underlying problems. 
it is a rational decision for people. And, and I, I agree with the councilman. They're very adept. They know, I mean, every penny counts, right? So they know these things. And we've heard anecdotes of people happy to get a promotion on Friday and they come back on Monday and they have to turn it down because they've done the calculations and they can't afford to take it. Um, so that was a lot to absorb there. And um, tomorrow, I want to speak to it for a second because the way Kyle described all of these various benefits that people can qualify for and the amount of money that uh, it can add up to doesn't address what you started off with, which is this notion that uh, these benefits are divided into so many different categories that there's not a holistic approach to uh, uh, how you get this um, um, income that you can then apply for the uses you absolutely need. Am I right? Yeah. And I mean, there, there is something to be said kind of going on on what Kyle said, especially as you design a guaranteed income program. And I know the Atlanta Federal Reserve has done some work on this, but, you know, you want obviously people like Councilman Froke, want to help all these poor people, um, give them some breathing room in their budgets. But you also have to be very conscientious as you're designing a program like this. You don't want to knock people off of all these public programs that they're getting. And so there's this awkward bureaucratic kind of dance to make sure you're not messing up all these people that you're, you're trying to help. But Kyle is right. I mean, there, there is the current incentive system that we have makes it really hard, um, you know, to be able to kind of get out of it because you are so scared that you're going to lose all these public benefits, but they, they are quite inflexible and it does make it hard to account for, um, emergencies. Amir. Yeah, you know, I think Kyle and Tamar are, are spot on. You know, the, the benefits cliff is a real challenge, but I would, I would note two things, one more broadly and one specifically about the program and how we've approached the benefits cliff uh, in our program. The first is that, you know, Kyle makes the point that if you avail yourself, if you're in poverty and you avail yourself of all the public assistance programs, you know, those dollars amount to near 70K or so. But the reality is, it's, and I've, you know, I've talked to folks who are in this situation, it takes you know almost a part-time and a full-time job to apply for and maintain your participation in all those programs. It's it's enormously bureaucratic. Uh, it's very difficult, and it's almost a disincentive to um, to reach out and, and say I need I need help. Um, so it's it's very very few people, if any, uh, are able to take advantage of all those benefits and maintain a job, and many of whom are, are young parents and raise a family. Um, but I you know we have grappled with this in the design of our program, right? And so one of the things we asked potential participants is what amount of funding above your benefits would be beneficial because even though we're working with programs to hopefully allow the cash transfer to be waived as income so their benefits remain, there, some of the participants will lose benefits and we've worked with the Federal Reserve here in Atlanta to use a, a create a benefits tool that will work with um, individuals uh, to, so they fully understand what will happen to their benefits if they take this $850 a month. But we have set it up at $850 because we know that at, at kind of the most, uh, individuals will lose about $500 in public benefits by taking the dollars. So they would still gross, you know, about $350 a month, um, assuming that those other dollars are going to supplant their missed benefits. So it, it's a real problem. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, I was sitting here listening to Kyle and Tamar, and I said, you know, part of the reason this is, uh, can turn people off. It's, it's very complicated. It's messy. Everything, the closer you get to it, the, the more mm -hmm. complicated it is. But you got to step back from this. One of the reasons that this is a point of passion for so many folks around the country who are leading these programs is that uh, 
there is enormous benefit to all of us, regardless of how much we, we make, if folks in poverty are more secure. There are health outcomes that, uh, better health outcomes that people have. There's better caretaking outcomes. Many of these folks are taking care of an elderly parent or a child. And if you're able to provide some dollars that allows them to do that, in fact, all the studies have shown uh, that I've read um, that the only decrease in work that happens when folks receive uh, monthly cash transfers in programs like this is that they stop, they pair back their work to take care of someone else. So uh, caretaking and older, younger, and whatnot. And that, there's enormous benefit for that. Um, we, we all uh, understand that caretaking is a part of our of healthy society. So uh, there are some broader social outcomes that I think we want to see, both economic and social, that these programs could potentially yield. Um, we got to get to our first break of the show uh, to second what Amir Faroqi just said. Uh, this is a complicated idea. It, there's a lot of elements that would go into making this uh, work, and I'm really appreciative of our panelists today for uh, helping walk us through them. we got a lot more to talk about when we come back. You're listening to Political Rewind. We're talking about the concept of guaranteed basic incomes. Uh, to close the wealth gap between those who have and those who have, have, are, are have-nots. And we know that Atlanta is, uh, one of the, has one of the starkest gaps between uh, people of means and those who are struggling to get by day to day. Uh, we're joined by a city councilman, Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroqi, uh, Kyle Wingfield of uh, the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, and my Tuesday partner, Tamar Hallerman at the AJC, who started this all off by writing a terrific piece. We'll, we'll post a link to that article, Tamar, on our social media so people can see the work that you d- did on that. Um, let's do this to start this segment of the show. Um, Sam Burmis Dawes um, talked uh, uh, yesterday to uh, a woman who runs the pro- oversees the program, the Guaranteed uh, Income Program in Jackson, Mississippi. It's called Magnolia Mothers Trust. And um, they've been working on these programs since 2018. They're going to start a new one in the spring. Uh, her name is Dr. Asia Nayandoro. And let's just listen to what she said uh, to giving in, to give Sam one example of how this program is helping the mothers who are benefiting from the fund. You know, one of I remember very vividly one of our moms that we talked to at that time talked about her frustration because her daughter and her frustration and quite frankly um, how she felt as if she was selling her daughter because her daughter had made it to the next level in the science fair. Um, you know, from her school to where she was now in the citywide science fair and it being a $25 registration fee and how she just was so sad and frustrated that she didn't have the $25 for that registration fee. Uh, you know, Tamar, it's it's a, such a small matter, $25 for a registration fee for a science fair. But one of the reasons I think that soundbite is illuminating is because it speaks to um, how she felt um, completely unempowered to help her daughter uh, it, it, this, with the science fair. And that is a part of what this is all about. There, there's a psychological and emotional element, as you wrote about in your story, to offering uh, uh, families uh, that have few means uh, some extra money to uh, do the things that they need to do. Yeah, you talk to advocates of, of guaranteed income programs like Miss Nandoro. 
And um, she talks about how the current social safety net, there's no agency for those people who receive those benefits. They can't decide where the money is going to go. You know, it has to be set aside for housing or health care or food. And so what happens to all those other things in life, like your science fair registration fee? Kyle, what do you yeah, think I, when you hear that? Yeah, I think it's a real problem. Um, and it's it's one of the reasons that, you know, something like the guaranteed income as a replacement for our current welfare system is attractive to a lot of people, I think, on the conservative or libertarian end of the spectrum, because I, I think they, they view it as kind of patronizing to say, well, we don't trust you to, um, you know, spend the money wisely, so we're going to force you to do it this way. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't even give people a chance to do it, uh, you know, do it well and on their own terms uh, before they get a chance. Uh, but I do want to say, uh, you know, the, the number one way to make sure that we empower folks here is to make sure that this is in combination with work. And I want to go back to something that Councilman Faroki said, um, you know, that, that well, it, it, it doesn't have a, a negative impact on work. Um, I, I referred earlier to the year Dr. King was assassinated. The first of these programs was tried. It was tried um, over a dozen years in four different programs in half a dozen states, over nine, about 9,000 families. Um, it's the largest experiment of this kind uh, that, that we've seen, and it was known as the negative income tax experiments, named for an idea that the great libertarian economist Milton Friedman had, the negative income tax, give people cash to spend. Um, and what they found, if you look across all four of those, across all 12 years, um, there, were, there were three different types of earners that they looked at, husbands, wives, and then uh, single females who were head of household. Um, across all those groups, uh, the husbands, they reduced their hours worked by about 7% and their earnings by 14. Wives reduced their hours worked by 17% and their earnings by 16%. And female heads of household about the same, 17% reduction in hours worked and 15% in earnings. Now, what that tells you, so, so they're not quitting working, right? And, I, and I, don't, I think I don't want people to get confused about the argument we're making here. But they did offset some of those hours, and the result was that for every dollar they gained, taxpayers had to spend about three. So that's a really inefficient way to go about helping people. Um, and, wait, wait, wait. Why know, did taxpayers have to pay three? What is that based on? Well, because uh, put another way, for every $1,000 these families received, they reduced their earned income by about $660. So about two-thirds of what they gained, uh, they, they offset with reduced work. Now, there may have been perfectly good reasons for them to do so. Uh, the councilman referred to a few of those having to care for a child or an elderly family member or whatever it may be. But, but, but the fact is that if you do this without some sort of incentive or requirement to work, then, then this is something you're going to see. And I want to contrast that with the welfare reforms we saw in the 1990s that did include that, and we saw a large permanent reduction in child poverty because it's the combination of this assistance plus working that really um, provides empowerment and, and provides for people to, to better their lives, especially back to the earlier discussion when we structure the programs correctly. Um, 
Amira, you know, it, it strikes me that one of the elements of this that has to be addressed is this is the belief by many people who support a program like this, as you do, that this is a country that can afford to help the poorest of its people um, live better lives. Now, there are various ways of doing that. The welfare system has been an effort at doing that. We know that it has tremendous problems. This guaranteed income program, yet another way of doing it. And of course, there are going to be issues. Of course, there are going to be problems with it. But at the base of all of this is the notion that we should be able to help people uh, live better lives because we are a wealthy country. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, like, you know, budgets are a reflection of our values and our, our priorities, as has commonly been said by many, many folks. And you know, I think when you, you know, in our hustle and bustle of daily life, and you know, we sometimes fail to step back and say, you know what, you know, we have enormous wealth in this country, and we have choices on how those dollars can be spent. And uh, you know, the programs that exist today, uh, for some of the reasons that Kyle and Tamara have mentioned, um, you know, they they impact people's lives, but they're also uh, they're also falling short, which is why I think the concept of a guaranteed income has kind of come back in the last decade or so as a potential intervention, um, because the system uh, is failing, or some people would say the system is working as intended, which is kind of keeping people trapped in poverty. Uh, and we have kind of, a, uh, you know, I think that you know, I've grown up at a time in this country in which kind of poverty is in many ways been criminalized or, or demonized, and this is, uh, I think, unfortunate. And a guaranteed income, I think, helps flip the narrative a little bit as to um, as to how we think about our neighbors who uh, may be working a job or two or three, uh, but are having it hard to having a hard time finding um, the ability to, to make ends meet. And I will, you know, no, you no. Know, Kyle cited the study uh, after Dr. King called for a guaranteed income, so the late 60s, early 70s. And I would I would counter a little bit and say, look, I mean, this is an enormously different times. You could go to college uh, at that time for three or four or five thousand dollars a year, and, and now we're talking fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year for time. I mean, the, the cost of living has just skyrocketed in this country, and wages haven't kept up. And so you see increasing number of Americans, uh, white, black, brown, rural, urban, suburban, who are having a hard time. Uh, and the last two years has been interesting because I think in 2018, 2019, this idea was kind of, you know, viewed as a bit radical. But as soon as the pandemic hit and tens of millions of Americans received cash transfer payments from the federal government, uh, many of whom never thought of themselves as being in a bucket that would need a cash transfer from the federal government, uh, I think people's mindset has started to shift a bit. It's like, oh, maybe this is a useful tool. And I think one of the things that we're going to try and discover and uncover in the work here is, and look, I don't know what the outcomes are going to be. And I, I come at it almost from an academic point of view. It's like, let's, you know, this is a problem. Let's try this intervention and see what we learn from it. And one of the learnings may be, you know, when there's an economic emergency, this is the best way to intervene. One of the learnings may be, look, there are really strong uh, job trajectory changes that happen when this happens, or there are public uh, and mental health uh, benefits that happen when this happens, or when people get cash. And so maybe we should be looking at cash as a way to improve public health outcomes. I, I don't know. But uh, I think to shy from trying this um, when we have entrenched generational poverty, frankly, felt most acutely by, by black Americans, especially in the South, um, I think is a disservice to, uh, to, our, to our community. So let's, let's try this and see what we learn from it. And there may be some state and federal um, actions that make sense after that. 
You know, tomorrow I, I've got to say, I thought about this program in a different context. Over the weekend, I happened to watch the great Questlove documentary, Summer of Soul, which is about a uh, concert in Harlem in 1969. It was kind of a, a, an extraordinary event in Harlem. It was the African-American Woodstock is the way it was described. And during the concert, one of the days of the concerts, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And CBS sent a, a correspondent, Bill Plant, up to the festival to ask uh, participants, people who were there in the audience, how they felt about the moon landing. And to a person, they said, we don't care. Why are we spending all that money on the moon? We need, we are, we're, we're struggling to make ends meet. There are too many Americans who can't get by. Um, and so that is one side of this story in why programs like Amir uh, is, is promoting in, in his community. Um, and, but the other side is you interviewed people in your story who specifically do not think this is a good idea. Sure. And there, there's people who point out, you know, we don't have a ton of long-term data on this stuff. So is it, you know, is it worth sinking a lot of money into this? There's other people who say, you know, sure, this can be helpful, but we also aren't addressing some of the underlying issues like healthcare and discrimination um, and issues like that. So there, there's some folks who look at it on a broader sense saying that this is one tool in the toolbox, but it shouldn't necessarily be one size fits all. Um, you know, it's interesting. I had never heard of guaranteed income until a couple years ago. I remember, um, you know, reading a little bit about the Stockton program and magazine pieces here and there. I remember Andrew Yang bringing it up on the campaign trail and thinking, like, what are you talking about? This is this is insane. But it's amazing how much the discourse around this has shifted. Um, and just like Council Member Froki mentioned, um, you know, the stimulus payments that came out in the wake of the pandemic, the extent, the expanded uh, child tax credit that, that Congress passed. I think a lot of people are starting to rethink the way that they, um, you know, think about issues like this. Well, we just lost Tamar's audio for a moment. Um, Kyle, because we lost Tamar, uh, let me give you the last word before I've got to get to a break. Yeah, I, I'm glad Tamar brought up the the more recent programs that aren't really a guaranteed income, but but function somewhat in, in a similar way, the stimulus payments and the child tax credit. You know, I I think we can't ignore that we're experiencing the largest spike in price inflation in 40 years, uh, as and, and I think it's clearly a result of that. You know, just trillions of dollars being put into the economy without any more production necessarily being associated with it. Um, we haven't seen, I mean, even the, the 1960s and 70s experiment with this wasn't on a large enough scale to, to you know, produce any inflation. And certainly Stockton and Mississippi and the, these other uh, groups are, are not large enough cohorts to do that. But, but we're really talking with some of the, the child tax credit payments and, and stimulus payments. We are talking about a large enough uh, segment of society receiving you know, additional money without any more goods or services being produced. And, and this, is, this is a clear effect. So I think it's absolutely something that we have to take in mind when we look at this. And another reason that I would say this concept is better as a replacement for our welfare system rather than uh, an addition to it, and because it works better in a lot of ways, but if you layer it on top of what exists, you, you really risk reducing the benefits for people uh, because they're going to be paying more for everything they purchase. Okay, I've got to get to the final break of the show. Uh, more when we come back. 
Uh, Amir Faroqi, I'm going to ask you a question that I, I want to ask uh, uh, Kyle as well. Uh, your program, uh, <clears throat> the $13 million program, which will uh, go to uh, uh, making payments of up to $850 a month to underserved uh, women uh, it, in your community, um, it, you, you do acknowledge, and you've said it several times in the show, it's an experimental program. It is a pilot project. You are not here today suggesting that it is time to launch this nationwide at all, at, at least at this point, right? Right. I, I think all these programs you've seen pop up around the country are trying to, to learn <clears throat> what the impact is. You know, you've seen programs that focus on foster kids, aging out of foster care. You've seen folks uh, start programs that are focused on uh, folks leaving jail and, and uh, preventing recidivism. So there's all these different ways you could structure a cash transfer program for a, a better social outcome and economic outcome. Um, but I, I do think uh, this is part of a broader conversation on what we've been trying to do to alleviate poverty in this country, or even just to create some basic economic dignity and security, has been failing over the last 50 years. I mean, you have the people who are poor in this country uh, have almost always been poor for generations. And there's um, kind of, uh, someone mentioned earlier, it may have been Kyle, you know, that a cash transfer program is not going to solve all that, but it is a step toward a much cleaner way to create some dignity and, and stability. Um, there are still, you know, pay gaps that are baked into our uh, our systems. There's housing and zoning discrimination. All these things that have created the inability for for folks to have economic mobility and, and to build wealth. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is a certainly an, an experiment, but one that has uh, immediate human impact for participants and will hopefully have some significant learnings for us, such that state officials and federal officials could potentially adopt them because it's very difficult for any city to do this at scale. It's way too expensive given the dollars that cities have and the obligations we have as a city. Kyle, one of the issues, we, we've had several authors on Political Rewind over the last, <clears throat> excuse me, seven or eight months talking about uh, African-American, uh, African-Americans who struggle to get by day to day. And, and, if, and if what they all point to is that the most significant problem they see for black people in this country, those who are doing poorly, is the inability. There's no such thing as generational wealth. Their parents didn't buy a house. Uh, they can't buy a house. They cannot accumulate the basic things that will allow them to, in fact, uh, have a basis for wealth. And, and I guess the question becomes for you, the welfare system isn't going to do that. What would the Georgia Public Policy Foundation say is a way to close that gap and allow, uh, especially uh, black Americans, a chance to catch up? Well, I think we'd have to have several more hour-long shows to, to, to get really delve into that issue, because like this, it's a complicated, it's a complicated problem with complicated answers, right? Um, what I would say is... Um, you know, one one problem is that you do have this generational trapping of people in poverty, and and I think we it, it is encouraging to have people like Councilmember Froki being willing to look at that and say like, look, we're we're not doing it right now, so how do we do it right in the future? Um, but you know, one one thing I always try to keep in mind when I'm thinking about these policy issues is that is I think it is is this solution does it look like how um, does it look like what success looked like in my life? Does it look like what I would want for my family? Um, and and if you're if you're proposing something that you wouldn't accept in your own life, 
or that doesn't really mirror how you were able to do things better in your life, I think its chances of, of working are probably not that great. So when I look at that, I look at things like I, I got a great education. I happen to get it in public schools, but not everyone has an opportunity to get a great education in public schools. So how do we um, mirror that for those children? Uh, with healthcare, uh, someone mentioned something along these lines earlier. You know, I'd much rather give people cash to purchase health insurance with uh, than what I consider a substandard program in Medicaid that leaves people without real access to the doctors they need when they need them. So things like that, um, you know, how do we give them health insurance that looks like the insurance I have, education, and so on? Tomorrow, um, we're running short on time, but you worked on this piece. You spent a lot of time researching it. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you the last word. What you, You've already said you never even heard about guaranteed income programs until relatively recently. What else? What did you learn as you uh, dug into this subject? Well, it was interesting to see, you know, because I with this piece, we wrote it for Martin Luther King Day. So obviously we were focusing very much on his words, very much on his community where he was born and where he preached in Old Fourth Ward. It was interesting to see how much that community has changed since he was writing, um, you know, since he was born, since he lived, and whether it can actually make a difference. You know, there, there's broader economic forces at play in a community like Old Fourth Ward where housing costs are skyrocketing and, and that sort of thing. But it was interesting to see overall some of the underlying issues are still the same. There's still a giant gap between the haves and have-nots um, and a dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, and so I was amazed at just how much his words at least resonated with me today, even given how much that community has changed. Thank you for that. Um, we're out of time. I, I do want to say that I, I think it was, I really appreciate the fact that we were able to talk about this in a uh, respectful way. You know, I, this did not turn out to be a contentious conversation because I think, uh, Kyle, you at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and you, Amir, in the work you do, both have an understanding that we have to find some ways to address poverty in this city, in the state, in the country. We may have different approaches to it, um, but I appreciate the fact that you you both confirmed it's something that matters to you and to the people you work with. So thank you for that. And Tamara Hallerman, thank you for writing the piece that uh, made the show uh, possible today. Also, my thanks to uh, producer Sam Burmis-Dawes, who produced this particular special edition of Political Rewind. I really appreciate the work you did on this. So thank all of you for uh, being with us. One quick note. Um, the next edition of the Political Rewind newsletter will be out sometime tomorrow afternoon. And if you're not a subscriber, you'll miss it. So why don't you come to gpb.org slash newsletters and subscribe. It's, uh, I think, something that will give you uh, some basic understanding of the top stories in political news every week. We'll be back again with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow.